you know, in previous points in time, there were the massacres and then there was the lynching trail. And so, uh, you know, one might be tempted to describe the police executions of unarmed blacks as the contemporary form of a lynching. The Strive for More podcast will resonate with those that strive for more in any aspect of their lives. Follow along on one man's journey on the path to a meaningful life through long-form interviews with everyone from successful entrepreneurs, artists, physicians, leading scientists, social media influencers, and professional athletes. This episode of the Strive for More podcast is brought to you by the Strive Accelerator, which is a weekly mastermind group for entrepreneurs. So if you're not seeing the success you want, or you're searching for a community of like-minded business owners, then send an email to jared at striveaccelerator.ca to book a call and learn more. Our next guest is the Samuel Dubois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies and Economics, and the director of the Samuel Dubois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. He has served as chair of the Department of African and African American Studies and was the founding director of the Research Network on Racial and Ethnic Inequality at Duke. His research focuses on inequality by race, class, and ethnicity, stratification economic schooling and the racial achievement gap, the economics of reparations, and the Atlantic slave trade, to name just a few. His most recent book, co-authored with A. Kirsten Mullen, is From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. This book has received the 2021 Lillian Smith Book Award, the 2021 Association for the Study of Negro Life and History Book Prize, and the 2020 Reagan Old North State Award for Nonfiction from the North Carolina Literary and Historical Association. Please welcome to the show, Professor Sandy Darity. Professor Darity. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Let's get right into what I'm uh, really looking forward to is going to be a tremendous conversation with one of the leaders in the field. And you've had this really incredible academic career and you're regarded by many as a leading expert in the field on inequality in the US. Do you mind sharing what started that interest for you personally? Actually, that interest started very young in life. Um, I recall two sets of circumstances. Uh, one is when my family lived in, in uh, Alexandria, Egypt. My father worked for the World Health Organization. Um, and so I was probably, you know, maybe five years of age. And um, I remember being taken to the beach. Well, maybe I was a little older than that. I might have been six or seven. Yeah. But I remember being taken to the beachfront, uh, and I would be taken to the beachfront by two different sets of friends. Uh, one set of friends uh, were uh, from families that were relatively poor, uh, families where uh, the parents worked largely as domestic laborers. And then another set of families, uh, the parents were in the military. Uh, and so they were considerably better resourced. And I discovered that when we would go to the beachfront, the uh, the family that was less well off would go to the side of the beach that was intensely crowded, where uh, there was, uh, uh, I guess, you know, literally there was far more more dirt and litter on the ground. Uh, whereas the family that uh, had the military parents 
would take you to the upper end of the beach, which was near King Farouk's palace, or the former King Farouk's palace, uh, where the, the sand was far more pristine, and uh, there was hardly anybody there at a given time. It was not crowded at all. And uh, this gave me a sense that the uh, location that people went to on the beach, uh, because there was a different expense for coming into each section of the beach, uh, gave you a very clear sense of class stratification in, uh, in, in, in uh, Alexandria, Egypt. Now, I didn't use that language at the time, but <laughs> I had a really, really clear sense that there was something different about the options that were available to the families that had less versus the ones that had more. Uh, and then the second, the second circumstance that I think shaped my, my impressions of the world in terms of inequality was uh, returning to the U.S. and spending time at my grandmother's home in a town called Wilson, North Carolina. Um, and uh, Wilson, North Carolina was a southern town that was most famous for its role as a um, an auction site for the tobacco sector. But uh, it also was a, a southern town that had the classic pattern of a of a railroad track that mm -hmm. separated the black and the white sides of town. And of course, you know, we were on the black side of town, uh, but it was a very visible uh, marker of uh, of the the way in which uh, legal segregation had operated uh, in that particular town, uh, and it gave me a sense of how it operated nationwide. So I think those are the two formative events that shaped my awareness of of economic inequality and inequality in general. And I think that that uh, those were those were a couple of experiences that propelled me on the road to the type of work that I've done subsequently. Was there a moment in time where you thought that that curiosity around inequality was going to become your life's work? Uh, I didn't think that uh, probably until I was uh, till I was in 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 college uh, and university, and you know, I, it wasn't until that stage that I decided I I was going to do a PhD in economics, and I was motivated to do a PhD in economics because I was convinced at the time that that was the field in which you could actually do the most research that would be connected to questions of economic inequality. I think I, I fairly quickly discovered that the answers that economists customarily gave to the question of why there are unequal outcomes across groups or across individuals were not satisfactory to me. Um, and so with the hubris of youth, I decided that I would become an economist so I could change the way people thought about these issues. Um, so and that you've was done uh, it. Well, no, no. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, to be, to be frank, I think uh, the work that I've done has had more of a resonance with non-economists than it has with economists. Uh, although, you know, the day is not over. So we'll see what happens. And that brings up the question of how did we 
get to this point of inequality and and how did history shape that? And so I want to give the listeners a couple of statistics that from your research about inequality in the US to highlight this problem that we're going to be discussing. And those two statistics are that black heads of household with a college degree have two thirds the wealth of white heads of household that only have a high school diploma. And the second one- Well, no, actually, actually the, the statistic is more damning than that. Oh no! I underrepresented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the the white heads of household have never finished high school. So black heads of household with a college degree have two thirds of the net worth of white heads of household who never completed high school. Wow. Well, it's not a good job on the interviewer's part when he screws up the first statistic. So let me try the second statistic, which is that black families have on average eight hundred thousand dollars less wealth than white families. And that is roughly correct. Okay, one out of two. That's the story of my life, 50-50. That's all right. So I want to start this discussion by going back to the past and understand how history has gotten us here, because that's one of the things of your, one of the really interesting things that I found about your research was that historical context. I'd like to know how has that, how has the Homestead Act of 1862 led us to where we are now? So I think that there's uh, a set of policies that the federal government pursued uh, over time that built white wealth and denied uh, denied black wealth. And uh, I would start not just with the Homestead Act, but with a companion event that didn't actually take place, which was the promise of 40-acre land grants to the formerly enslaved, a promise that was never kept. Uh, and that promise uh, would have created the foundation for wealth for black families that could have been transmitted across generations in such a way that we might not have to think about the question of reparative justice today. But we do have to think about reparative justice because at the same time that uh, the formerly enslaved were denied the 40-acre land grants as restitution for their years of bondage, the federal government was providing upwards of 1.5 million white families with 160-acre land grants in the Western territories that had been recently taken from the indigenous populations. And so as a consequence, those families had a stake, a financial stake uh, in American society that, again, they could transmit across generations quite effectively. And this laid the foundation for the racial wealth gap, the failure to give the formerly enslaved the 40 acres while um, one and a half million white families were receiving 160 acre land grants. Um, And I I will note that um, the social scientist uh, Trina Williams Shanks actually estimates that there are now 45 million living white Americans who are beneficiaries of the Homestead Acts. So the Homestead Acts take place, obviously, after slavery ends. Most of the uh, land that was allocated under the Homestead Acts was distributed during the end of the 19th century, although the land allocation plans and practices under the law continued as late as the 1970s. But in the 20th century, unlike the 19th century, 
there was a far greater emphasis given to uh, wealth accumulation associated with home ownership rather than the government distributing land. And so we had the introduction of the uh, uh, Federal Housing Administration. We had the adoption of the GI Bill in the aftermath of World War II. And under those uh, pieces of legislation, uh, we had a situation in which they were applied discriminatorily. They were applied in such a way that they promoted home ownership among white families while they did not do the same for black families. And so it reinforced the racial wealth difference that has been carried across generations. The two other policies I would like to mention in this context, uh, one of these policies concerns uh, inaction on the part of the federal government, uh, looking the other way, essentially, or in some cases being complicitous. but this is the uh, practice that the government took in response to the wave of white massacres that occurred from the end of the Civil War into the 1940s. And these massacres, uh, there were upwards of 100 of them. Uh, they took place north and south, east and west in the United States. And in addition to uh, resulting in the substantial loss of black lives, Virtually all of these massacres involve the appropriation or destruction of black-owned property by the white terrorists. Um, And the federal government, in the process of looking the other way, again, reinforced the racial wealth gap. Uh, And the final policy I'd like to mention is is the, uh, are the practices that are associated with the federal highway system or the resources that the federal government provided for the building of highways throughout the country. Um, And frequently, uh, some of the highways that were instituted were run through the heart of black neighborhoods or black business districts, and in the process, uh, effectively dismantling them. So again, uh, there was a, a deprivation of black wealth uh, at the same time that white wealth continued to be promoted. For listeners that don't know, um, because you know, I think many Americans would know that history of the Civil War, but some international folks may and probably do not know. And so what Dr. Darity is talking about is after, uh, after the Civil War, the federal government told blacks, black slaves that they would get 40 acres and a mule, but they reneged on this promise. Um, and this stopped what would have been the ability for obviously restitution, but for blacks to transmit that land, which obviously has a significant dollar value on it to their heirs. Can you speak more about that economic impact on current day descendants of slavery? Well, I mean, it's noteworthy that actually the 40 acre land grants that were projected were actually one quarter the size of the land grants that were given to white Americans. Uh, but even that projected amount was not delivered. And I think that there would have been an opportunity for uh, black Americans to experience a far greater degree of prosperity, even with the smaller allocation than the 160 acres. And I think that this would have been in part a consequence of the fact that the land would have been concentrated in such a way that you would have had um, a a rather thick belt 
of, uh, of black communities that would have stretched at least initially uh, from the Sea Islands of South Carolina to uh, northern Florida, bordered by the St. Johns River. Uh, and it, it's essentially you would have had a belt of black communities that would have been able to use the land cooperatively, but also uh, would have been a site for significant political influence uh, because of the presence of such a highly concentrated black voter base. So I always like to say, you know, yes, uh, one of the reasons we observe the racial wealth disparity in the United States today is because the 40 acres were not delivered. Uh, but I also would have to say, and this is another political dimension, that it would have been important for the federal government to provide protection for the formerly enslaved to maintain their possession of this of this property, uh, you know, especially given the history of how white violence operated subsequently to take away whatever property blacks had acquired. Uh, above and beyond what they did not receive in the form of the 40 acres. So the Union Army would have had to have stayed in the South longer and or uh, armed uh, the black population living on the 40-acre land grant so that they could have preserved uh, their their possession of that property. It seems like the Civil War, um, obviously, was fought to free black slaves. And then after the North won, after the Union won, there seemed to be a a lack of follow through on part of the North to ensure equality. It's almost like they were happy that the war was over and didn't want to deal with those harder questions that you're talking about around equality between black and white and ensuring integration and um and political power and voting and all of that sort of thing. And so do you think there's, what was the reason behind that? Was there a reason? I think that in the immediate aftermath of the war, the evidence suggests that the North was willing to enforce a peace that would have provided full citizenship for black Americans and the Southerners who had been engaged in the in the traitorous rebellion were willing to accept that. Uh, but uh, one of the critical events was the uh, assassination of, of Abraham Lincoln. And that resulted in the installation of his vice president, Andrew Johnson, his second vice president, Andrew Johnson uh, it becomes becomes president of the United States. And Johnson has no commitment whatsoever to the project of full citizenship for black Americans. And so he systematically begins to dismantle all of these policies, including the land-grant policy, that, uh, that would have, have significantly altered uh, conditions for, for black Americans. And in so doing, he emboldened the former Confederates to recognize that they could once again seize control over Southern governments. And they proceeded to do exactly that. So uh, I think a really key event is, uh, is the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. 
Do you think, hypothetically, if that had not happened, do you think we'd be at a different place in inequality today? Well, we can only speculate, but yes, I do think that that's a reasonable expectation. Do you think inequality would be less between black and white? Uh, yes, I think it would be less, and I think you know, in in uh, in the circumstances that might have evolved, had the forty acres been distributed, had the uh, formerly enslaved been able to maintain possession of that property, uh, under those circumstances, we might well have had a situation today where we wouldn't really be talking about the need for reparations. I find that historical context really fascinating and explains at least in part, some of those differences. How do you think the Civil War set up the next hundred years of Jim Crow segregation, which for listeners that may not know was legal segregation, the rise of the, the KKK, and just really horrible violence against black communities? I don't know that the Civil War in and of itself set that up. I think it's the events that took place immediately after the Civil War was over that set up the conditions for uh, the restoration of what we might essentially call neo-slavery, where you had renewed authority that was exercised by the folks who had been secessionists. Um, And with their renewed authority, there was a a systematic attempt to, uh, to put black people back in their place. And, uh, This was also accompanied by, as you just said, uh, extreme violence, Uh, particularly during the period that we refer to as the Reconstruction Era, where uh, an an extended attempt was made to make sure that uh, black men in particular were able to vote on par with white men. Um, And so much of the, the violence that took place, at least in the 1870s, was intended on the part of the white terrorists to ensure that the uh, uh, black vote was not something that would have any significant presence or influence on what was happening in Southern societies. You spoke about neo-slavery. What are those ways in which black Americans are still in neo-slavery, I guess? Well, I, I, I do prefer to call it neo-slavery because there, it's, it's definitely not um, an exact equivalent to uh, a period in time where uh, every hour, every minute of an individual's life was owned by somebody else. Uh, but the neo-slavery dimension are, are the, uh, the aspects of life where there's a replication of certain dimensions of that kind of enslavement experience. That is to say, the control over an individual's life by somebody else that has some elements of being nearly absolute. Uh, And I would say that if we look in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, the introduction of the so-called Black Codes throughout a number of the Southern states was precisely that, an attempt to replicate some of the circumstances that were associated with slavery. So that that's one instance. Uh, a second instance is, you know, what what uh, uh, what Douglas Blackman refers to as slavery by another name, which is the way in which the convict leasing system operated. 
And of course, you know, it, it's now relatively well understood that the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery in the United States, has a, a critical exception clause that if somebody is uh, convicted of a crime, they can be uh, they can be put into a state of involuntary servitude or slavery. Um, and so um, felon status is associated with the prospect of explicit enslavement. And so under the convict leasing system, that's precisely what occurred uh, with uh, brutal effects on, uh, on, on black lives, particularly uh, relatively young black men who were uh, sent into these prison camps and forced into hard labor and frequently uh, frequently died. So um, so those, those are just two things, the black codes and then the um, convict leasing system. And you know in the, and then sort of the, the, the disregard for black life is something that has been pervasive. Um, you know, the, the capacity to take black lives with impunity is, is pervasive, uh, last to the present moment where we start looking at police executions of unarmed blacks. Uh, but, you know, in previous points in time, there were the massacres and then there was the lynching trail. Uh, and so, uh, you know, one might be tempted to describe the police executions of unarmed blacks as the contemporary form of a lynching. How can policing change to reduce that inequality? Uh, I think that there has to be a change in first, the individuals who become policemen or policewomen, uh, that they have to have a, a different attitude, a different set of perspectives, that the selection process for bringing them into the police force has to be different. Uh, but I think that from the standpoint of trying to alter the behavior of the existing police force, then it becomes at best a question of changing their incentives. Uh, and their incentives have to be changed sharply. And I would include here the elimination of qualified immunity. I would include here finding ways in which to uh, to compel them uh, for any act of malfeasance, for for bearing the financial burden of that act of malfeasance themselves personally, rather than having city governments uh, foot the bill, yeah, and so forth. So, uh, so those are those are two things that could be done to affect uh, individual incentives among people who are serving in the police force. When thinking about inequality between black and white, why is wealth inequality the right way to perceive it as opposed to an inequality in income? Well, I certainly think inequality in income is relevant, but I think that inequality in wealth better captures the cumulative intergenerational effects of how racism has operated in America. Uh, and so as a consequence, I think it's the wealth disparity that needs to be the object of plans for reparations or, or restorative justice. Uh, I am thinking that, uh, you know, wealth is, uh, is, is, is something that can substitute for income when income is lost 
either expectedly or unexpectedly. Uh, whereas you can't go in the opposite direction. I mean, income doesn't substitute for uh, for a collapse in wealth. Uh, and the, the, the sheer presence of wealth as kind of a cushion or an insurance mechanism for families when they're confronted with emergencies, uh, I think is a critical dimension that suggests that maybe wealth is more important than income. Certainly, uh, wealthier families have um, a greater capacity to participate in the political process effectively. They uh, can purchase their way into high amenity neighborhoods. They are better able to uh, facilitate having their sons and daughters come out of college or university without any debt. Uh, they're in a better position to try to provide uh, quality legal counsel for their family members in the event that you're confronted with issues with the criminal justice system. And, uh, you know, of course, they're in a better position to leave bequests and gifts to subsequent generations to ensure that they will have a significant degree of economic security and opportunity. Therefore, that lower level of wealth that is derived from that passing over of 40 acres and a mule is causes, I should say, lower wealth, Does, because more wealth begets wealth. Yeah, this is the intergenerational effect. Uh, some people refer to generational wealth. I prefer talking about intergenerational wealth. Can you speak to the significance of that intergenerational wealth? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's critical that uh, we understand that the wealth position that most individuals hold is largely a consequence of the wealth position that was held by their parents or their grandparents. Uh, that parental and grandparental wealth is actually transmitted to the youngest adult generation. And uh, it's transmitted not only by inheritances, which is what people, I think, uh, overemphasize to some degree, but also by what we refer to as in vivo transfers, which are essentially gifts. Uh, these are transfers that take place while the donor is still living unlike inheritances, which are transmitted after the donor's death. And, um, and in vivos are particularly important because not only because of their size or amount, uh, but they're also very important because of their timing. Uh, and, I, you know, just one illustration is the uh, parents or grandparents providing support for a down payment for the mortgage on a home. Uh, this enables a young couple to enter into home ownership in a way in which uh, others that don't have that kind of support might not be able to do. Uh, so that's, that's just a single example of how essentially you can transmit wealth across generations and transmit it without the donors necessarily no longer being here. If grandparents' wealth is the best predictor of a kid's wealth, then is the American dream dead? Uh, the American dream is dead insofar as we don't do anything about this massive wealth inequality. Can we turn to what we can do about that massive wealth inequality? Well, I mean, if we're talking about racial wealth inequality, the straightforward answer is a program of reparations for black Americans who had enslaved ancestors in the United States. Uh, essentially, the descendants 
of the folks who were denied the 40-acre land grants uh, in 1865. Can you elaborate on that a little more? I, I'm just I'm just trying to say that the individuals who should be eligible recipients for uh, black reparations should be those persons whose ancestors were enslaved in the U.S. And the reason for that is is just because the federal government made a promise that they were going to give 40 acres and a mule to the descendants of slavery and then reneged on that promise. Yes, that's absolutely correct. And And then on top of that, you had a wave of additional policies that compounded the degree of racial wealth inequality. Now, if we're, if we're talking about general wealth inequality, then that's a different story. Uh, and it might require a different solution. Uh, I've actually been an advocate of a policy called baby bonds, which has more conservative implications for the overall degree of wealth inequality, but hopefully positive implications for improving uh, how much equality we have in wealth. Uh, so the baby bonds proposal is simply the idea that each newborn infant would receive the equivalent of a trust account that would be provided by the federal government. Uh, and this trust account would be calibrated on the basis of the wealth of their parents. And so, you know, in in the stump speech that I frequently give about this, but, you know, if if Bill Gates or if uh, if if Oprah Winfrey had a new child, we would give them a fifty dollar uh, trust account. But for children born into families at the lowest end of the wealth distribution, we would give them a fifty to sixty thousand dollar trust account. And they would be able to access these accounts when they reach uh, young adulthood. And uh, in the formulation that I've tried to develop, in principle, they could use this for any purpose that they desired. Uh, but there are other people who feel that their options should be constrained. And so some of it have said that the funds only could be used for education, for uh, business ownership or uh, for some other uh, purpose that we might deem to be acceptable. In terms of racial inequality, wealth inequality, how do you view individual responsibility versus the collective responsibility? I definitely do not think that uh, the response to racial inequality is something that is a matter of individual or personal guilt. Uh, I think that it is a matter that has to be addressed through the collective institution of the federal government. Um, and I, I think that both as a matter of principle, because it's the federal government that is the culpable party, given the array of policies that we've talked about. But it's also a practical, there's also a practical reason. The federal government is really the only entity that can meet the bill. Um, so for illustrative purposes, the um, combined budgets of all of the state and local governments taken together is about $3.1 trillion. It would require at least $11 trillion to close the racial wealth gap, to, uh, to eliminate that $800,000 difference in average wealth between black and white households that, that you mentioned at the start of our conversation. And so the one statistic I got right. 
Uh, well, there were there were only two. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, the the um, the federal government really is the only entity that has the capacity to meet a bill that large. Uh, and we now know that it can, given the kind of response that's been been made to the pandemic and the types of funds that have been mobilized very, very quickly to try to address uh, the economic consequences of the pandemic. So uh, it's the federal government that should do it, and it is the federal government that can do it. Do we know what the present value of the reneged promise of the 40 acres and a mule would be in today's dollars? Like the the wealth cap is $11 trillion, you said. How much of that is made up just solely based on that intergenerational transfer of wealth? I, I would say roughly, you know, the for, the present value of 40 acres, it depends indeed on, on which, what interest rate you use for compounding purposes. But I think it's probably fair to say some figure between three to $4 trillion. And so, uh, that would be um, somewhere in the vicinity of about a third of the $11 trillion figure. And some of that other percentage is made up because of the Jim Crow segregation between 1870 and 1960, roughly? Because of Jim Crow segregation, because uh, we might anticipate that uh, the value of wealth or the amount of wealth that could have been generated above and beyond what people owned in the land uh, could be could be quite significant. Uh, and we also have the federal government creating home ownership opportunities for white Americans that they did not provide black Americans. And then to the extent that whatever prosperity black Americans did achieve was frequently taken away or destroyed through white violence, uh, you know, again, that, that, that would widen the gap in wealth. And so, um, so yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, that, that we, we have to do a calculation that goes above and beyond the present value of the 40 acres, but that present value is a significant part of the wealth gap. When we look look across countries at the black-white wealth gap, is there major differences in the United States? Is that an outlier, or is that about the average that we see across developed countries? Uh, that's a tricky one because we don't really have very good measures of the the degree of wealth inequality across countries by race or ethnicity that we observe with respect to income inequality. We have better data on income inequality. But two of the countries in which we do have some data are uh, India and the UK. And if we look at the numbers in the UK, they probably are not very different from the numbers in the United States if we're looking at uh, black and white British citizens. Uh, The magnitude of the gap doesn't look as wide in India. but I think that is because the data that we have looks at median wealth mm. and not the Excuse mean the average. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and the, and the median gives you a smaller uh, smaller measure of the differential because you're just looking at the folks at the middle of the distribution. I, I've emphasized in my work that 
actually when it comes to intergroup wealth differences that you need to look at the mean and not the median. And uh, there are a couple of reasons I would give for that in the U.S. context. Uh, the first is 97% of the wealth that is held by all white households is held by white households with a net worth above the white median. So if you were to go to the middle of the distribution for white households, 97% of the wealth would be held by households who are above the middle. Uh, and then the, the second reason is because uh, this skewed distribution of wealth is not exclusively due to a handful of extraordinarily wealthy white billionaires. Although there there is a handful of extraordinarily wealthy white, <laughs> I think they're only white. <laughs> well, there there's a couple of black uh, billionaires, but their billions are far far smaller than the billions of the white billionaires. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but but it's it's not just the billionaires that are the source of the skewed distribution. And this is the other statistic I'd like to share which is 25% of white households have a net worth in excess of $1 million. And that's only true for 4% of black households. Is it fair to say then that slavery has had ramifications worldwide in terms of black-white inequality? Or is there a different factor that has caused that different, the inequality in the UK and the US, the UK obviously as a purveyor of slavery? So I think it's a. It, I think that the wealth differences that we observe today are a manifestation of the long-term effects of slavery, but I think that that's attributable in large measure to the fact that virtually no country has ever addressed the effects of slavery itself. Uh, you know, had had the forty acres been distributed, I think we would be having a different conversation today. Uh, and so it's really, uh, you know, I would argue that these wealth disparities are a consequence of the circumstances that took place after the end of slavery, in which there was no real attempt in most locations to try to address the question of restitution. Outside of reparations, in terms of wealth inequality between black and white, what do we do? Uh, I'm not sure that we can do much of anything. Uh, you know, um, I really, really don't. Uh, I'm not sure that there's any kinds of intermediate or indirect steps or universal programs that will make much headway towards closing the racial wealth gap. Uh, so uh, it, it needs to be an act of reparative justice that directly targets elimination of the gap in net worth between black and white households. In some ways, that is excellent. We have a clear solution. You know, there's so many public policy issues that are so, so complex. And of course, this one is so, so complex as well. But it seems like at least there is a solution that, you know, we spent trillions of dollars, $6 trillion during the pandemic. Why can't we do that for reparations? Right. And, and you know, I guess, I guess my, my position is you close the racial wealth gap by closing exactly. the racial wealth gap. Are you optimistic? Uh, well, I, I'm. I guess I'm. I'm. I'm eternally <laughs> an optimist, and so far, <laughs> you know, in insofar as I live in a world that that 
it gives me a strong basis for pessimism, but I press <laughs> on. So, uh, yeah, but, but there are some signs of, there are some positive signs. Um, in in uh, the year 2000, a survey that was undertaken by a couple of University of Chicago faculty members, uh, Ravana Popoff and Michael Dawson, found that 4% of white Americans endorsed reparations. Uh, and then by the year 2016, it looked like it was closer to 15%. Uh, and now today we're getting above 20%. Uh, and that figure is actually uh, a conservative one because the way in which they've worded questions about reparations have kind of loaded the dice. Uh, one of the more recent surveys asked people if they would support using taxpayer money to provide mm -hmm. direct cash payments to black Americans for reparative purposes or for reparations. And so once you inject the phrase taxpayer money oh, in there, it. you've, you've, uh, you, yeah, well, it's, it's <laughs> all political, but you've personalized uh, it. You, maybe you've, you've increased the number of people who you've increased the number of people who say no, uh, you know, whether in, in contrast with wording the question without that phrase being in it. Uh, and, you know, I think it's important that we recognize that it's not necessarily uh, the case that we need to raise taxes to pay for reparations. Uh, we didn't raise taxes to fund the various kinds of initiatives in response to the pandemic. Uh, we didn't raise taxes during the Great Recession when there were efforts made to fund projects that essentially bailed out the banks. Uh, but uh, there, there was no tax increase in either case. And so uh, there doesn't have to be uh, necessarily in this case either. On that note, Professor Darity, I want to thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat with us and shedding so much light onto a topic that is so crucial in our world moving forward. For the listeners, if you want to learn more about Professor Darity, you can find him personally on Twitter at Sandy Darity, and you can buy his book, From Here to Equality, wherever you buy books. Professor Darity, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you. I was glad to be on the program. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back, and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at Strive Accelerator and find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.